it's really a systemic issue that can only be changed when we restructure the way we seek out education and also that we reward what education truly is. You know, do you need a PhD to know how to protect an ocean? I don't think so. Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Silverwood. And our guest on the podcast today is Dr. Cliff Capono, who is a professional surfer, a chemist, a journalist, and an incredible communicator from Hilo on the big island of Hawaii. Now, Cliff is one of those people that when you see clips of him surfing and just living, you stand in your tracks and you marvel. He's a stunning human being to look at. His prowess in the ocean is just unparalleled, but he's also taken it upon himself to be such a critical communicator for science, for the importance of educating young people, particularly from indigenous cultures, and getting out there and making sure your life is meaningful. So when it came time for this conversation, I had a long list of notes. I wanted to talk about some of the great roles he's performed, his career, his time studying, his surfer biome project, which looked to study through biochemistry how similar surfers are all around the planet. I wanted to talk to him about some of the films that he's made. I wanted to talk about the work he's done with Surfrider Foundation and Ambassadors for Parlay for the Ocean and Save the Waves. But in the end, this conversation led itself towards a simple task of me listening to Cliff. He has so much wisdom and so much knowledge and something so innate within him that I just had to sit back and listen, as I often do with these podcasts. So I think there's something about that in the sense that Cliff is a huge advocate for an indigenous voice to shine through in knowledge and decision-making, particularly in the way that we treat the ocean and we treat communities and cultures. So uh, there is a lesson there. If we often just let ourselves listen, play the role of the listener, and then use that to make informed decisions, then maybe we wouldn't be in the predicament we are today. So sit back, um, relax, and let Dr. Cliff tell you some great stories about him, about why he does what he does, and why we should all pay a lot more attention to indigenous voices in decision-making for Planet Ocean and our shared future. Thanks as always for listening to the Ocean Impact Podcast. A very big welcome today on the Ocean Impact Podcast to Dr. Cliff Capono, uh, a chemist, a professional surfer, a fantastic communicator, and I'm really looking forward to this engaging conversation with Cliff. Um, mahalo, thanks for being here. Uh, mahalo, yeah, thank you. Yeah, excited to be here. So, brother Cliff, um, you obviously have a very deep connection to the ocean, so I wonder if we could start where I often like to begin, which is, you know, what does the ocean mean to you personally, to your culture, and to how it's shaped you as a person in your career? Yeah, this is always like a weirdly difficult 
question that I, I get and it's like it's a difficult answer because it's like how do you explain something that is just like foundational to everything for like your identity your belief system your insecurities your fears like it's not just all this um you know seemingly like positive things but it's also sometimes these scary things and challenging things like the ocean encapsulates all of it for me and I think for many people from the islands it's 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 kind of at the essence the core of our identity I think it's almost if like aliens were to come down to earth and be like what's it like what does planet earth mean to you and you'd be like uh like that's where I live. It's like, it defines me as like a, a earthling. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a tremendous um, part of my life. And it's something that I often take uh, maybe a little bit for granted, you know, looking out, I'm so fortunate to be able to just look out to the horizon and, you know, that that's my world right there. It's not um, buildings or freeways or anything like that it's just looking out and that's what gives me my sense of peace and I'm, I'm just so so grateful to have the ocean in my life and have a I believe a very intimate relationship with the ocean um, and it's something that was passed down for, for a long time I don't it's almost like maybe not so much the ocean is giving me that peace as much, or I know it does, but there's also just a strong community here where I feel comfortable even within my community. I don't have to like explain why the ocean is so important. I don't have to pretend that it's like this all encompass encompassing power. It's like everyone on my street, everyone in my town, I go to the supermarket, like we, we all just know the ocean is a priority and it feels like a it's just comfortable. It's comfortable to know that I, I live among ocean people and it's, you know, it connects me with people who've never even seen the ocean too. It's, uh, it's just, it's such an amazing thing that it's, it's funny to have to talk about it. <laughs> Was it when you moved away to further your academic studies that that really became so clear and obvious to you, like growing up was it so intrinsically a part of your life and your community, your culture, that it wasn't really until you moved away that that really started to become apparent? Yeah, I would say probably I, I would be growing up surfing every day was like a must, had to surf. And I got hurt uh, uh, quite a few times. And then that's what kind of made me have to take a break from being in the ocean. So I would say maybe injuries was more of a, uh, a way of realizing how much I depended on the ocean for my own like mental health. And then moving away, uh, I was still on the coast. I was on the Western coast of North America in the state of California. So I, I didn't really have to be inland or landlocked, but there is a very different culture, ocean culture there. And I think that's when I started to recognize that um, my perspective and my kind of desires weren't uh, found everywhere else. You know, I think uh, even though Southern California is a very ocean uh, 
minded culture it it's just a different culture altogether and that's something that I had to accept I, I think for me it was a a form of acceptance uh, of different views and different perspectives and it it wasn't a bad thing it just really forced me to be honest with myself and and kind of humble myself you know I I, I do have a lot of pride in where I come from and the, the origins of my people and the way we um, view the natural world around us but I know it's not it's not necessarily the best it's just one of the you know millions of perspectives that are out there and though I believe it's a it's a great contributor I have to be willing to take a step back and ask myself are my views and are my people's views what's best in a foreign place and I don't, I don't necessarily know, which kind of led me to explore some of the um, indigenous tribes in the area where I was going to school, uh, particularly the Kumeyaay people who they're, I don't want to speak for them from what I was just told uh, and close friends. Um, I was educated on their burial grounds, um, a famous beach in Southern California known as Black's Beach. Uh, is known to them as Skeleton Hill. And that's where some of the oldest remains on North America of humans were ever found. And these bones were, a lot of them are locked up in these um, boxes at the university. And, you know, the, the these are one of the few people in history to have experienced climate change in their like songs and chants, you know, like climate change for us, we're seeing maybe a, just a small sliver of the differences, you know, in our lifetime, these tries have existed for not just thousands of years, but on the order of 10,000 years, which to me just blows my mind that where I was surfing down at the beach, they have stories of where that's where, you know, their house were, that's where the fire pit was, or that's where they were doing the dance or the songs, or that's where they would monitor the stars and the cosmos, you know, it's just so trippy to be able to get such a fresh, um, old perspective, because my people, we've been in these islands for about 2000 years, which is just eclipsed by the Kumeyaay people in the Southern California region, uh, San Diego and Baja, Mexico. It's just, it, I don't know, that, that, that's that whole idea of humility with my indigenous perspective, uh, finding new perspectives, and also recognizing that if someone in the area doesn't necessarily know the, know the old stories or know the, the indigenous stories, it doesn't mean they're bad people. It's just maybe they haven't been, um, privileged with that yet I do really appreciate in a lot of your communications particularly what I pick up from your Instagram that you you do bring out fantastic stories and historical um, reflections from your culture and other cultures tell us a little bit of, about that maybe even with reference to a to a story that's you know currently fitting for you where your head's at um, from the east of the Big Island of Hawaii where you currently are. Yeah, I, I, I feel like uh, I love telling stories. It's just something that I, uh, 
I, I always loved listening to stories growing up. And I grew up without you know, TV and we read a lot of books. And my, my dad was big on, um, my mom too. They, they would, my mom would read to us and my dad would just take us to the library. So we spent so much time at the library. And um, I just had like my imagination probably still is. It's just like so out there with how things are that the, the story is so, it's so fun. And maybe for me at the time, it was to escape some of maybe the social and economic uh, situations that were happening in my community growing up. So having these stories, uh, you know, it's not an ancient story, but um, well, one story that I, I really loved, um, shoot, I can't even, I can't even think of the author right now. I, I need to actually just double check just to make sure. Absolutely. Um, that I'm saying, I know it's, um, of course, Robert Louis Stevenson. So he wrote a, a story, a short story called Imp in the Bottle. So it's not even like a Hawaiian story, but it's based, uh, it starts um, with a, a main character from my island, from Kona. And he ends up going to San Francisco with the ships, which is pretty common for um, the Hawaii labor situation in you know, the 1800s, early 1900s, a lot of Hawaiians went up to the Pacific Northwest in San Francisco to be uh, merchants on the, um, on the ships and things like that. So it starts with this uh, Hawaiian leaves to San Francisco and he meets this uh, random stranger and he presents them with this like magical bottle, which gives you all your wishes. And the whole story is around that. You can get whatever you want if you have the bottle but if you're left with the bottle when you die, you guarantee go to hell. And the, the way you get rid of the bottles, you have to sell it and you only can sell it for less than what you bought it for. So he bought it at like 40 bucks and it just goes through this whole story of him getting it, giving it up, falling in love. His wife ends up getting sick, finds it back and it gets down to where he, he purchased the, the bottle, the magical bottle at the end of the story for a penny or something. So it's like, he can't sell it anymore. And it's just, it's a fun story about, um, it's like magical and, and, and mythical, but it, it, that story wasn't so much the thing that lured me is that there was a Hawaiian as the main character and the story went through all different parts of the world. And to me, that just was like, so fascinating to me. Um, I, I think I first heard the story when I was like eight or nine and I just was like, you know, we look out again, like at the, out at the ocean and it's like, you, that's it. That's the whole universe. You don't see anything else. I, I remember not leaving Hawaii till after, well, after high school, you know, I never moved away until I started graduate school in my mid twenties. You know, it's like, I just, this is my whole world. Everything that I I understand and the way I think is central to these islands and hearing stories of far off distant places. And it just was so like romantic. And I, I love the story and I love the stories that originate here too, because they, these islands are so diverse, you know, on our island alone, on, on the big island, we have, I want to say like 11 of the 13 climates on the planet. So just driving around the island in a matter of hours, you're going from lush jungle to barren lava fields to 
snowy mountains, the temperate forests. It's just, there's so much going on that for me, these stories that originated out of our people were not only entertaining and inspiring, but they also helped to establish some of the maybe rules um, that are critical for us to interact and survive on a, a closed system like an island. And, and that's why I, I, they, we, have a, um, we have a word in Hawaiian, it's called kauna. And what that kind of means is like, it's not really in your face. Like the, the message is not quite there. There's a little bit of kauna inside, we say. And if you're open to receive, and if you're in that right place, then you're going to catch that message. And if you're not, it's not going to be given to you. And it's almost like a, an insurance to know that the right information is going to the right people because it's not just handed. And unfortunately, that's what I see in a lot of the, not just the younger generation, but maybe even the older generation too. I think they believe that when they go to say a university, or to a classroom where they pay some sort of money that they're, they deserve to get information. Like, you know, like I, I paid X amount of money. You teacher, give me the access to success. You owe me because I'm just paying money. And that's just not the way the world works. I feel no matter if you're a Hawaiian or if you're a Southern Californian or if you're an Australian, like that don't work that way. You know, it's, uh, it's that idea of reciprocity where, you know, we culturally, we have a saying is we don't ask a lot of questions. And from some people's perspective, I go, how's knowledge transferred? How do you elevate consciousness if questions aren't being asked? When that oftentimes seemed to be a very colonial mindset to come in what's this what's that the entitlement for knowledge where to gain knowledge takes a lot of um, humility it, it takes a lot of diligence um, and discipline so if someone wants to learn how to fish say here in hawaii if they come down and say oh teach me the knot teach me the hole teach me the bait and teach me the moon teach me the tide that that's something that is just like given like you know we know that that's a resource and if we just provide access to all the resource how do we know that you're going to be a diligent steward of that resource whereas you take the time to go down and fumble on the rocks and you have your own pole and eventually someone will come and see you and they'll, they'll watch and they'll watch and eventually over time after kind of displaying the intention uh, there more oftentimes than not some elder comes and helps and unlocks not just the tides and the bait but they unlock that you're at the whole wrong beach I just come here for stress relief you want to eat come over here to this hole you know and it's just it turns into this this relationship that is so seated in reciprocity and it's so founded in this idea of belonging you know and, and that's what the story does for me it's it's it people don't really ask to get told the story when I tell them sometimes I just tell them and it also I feel like compelled when I know that this is a good story 
for this, or that's a good store for this. Cause I would just listen. My dad would take me to his friend's house and these, these elders houses. And I, I, it was always like a catch 22 because I wanted to go with my dad and get out of the house, but I didn't know if he was going to go to a talk story sesh with one of his friends and be there hours. And I just be sitting there and like, just like, Oh no, not another story about this. But now those are some of my fondest memories of just listening and hearing these stories that, you know, when you're young or when I was young, I would hear all these new stories. Everything was new, unique. And I'm just like, wow, that kind of makes sense. Or that doesn't make sense. Or, you know, it's just, it's always so fresh. And then I got to a point probably around maybe 16 years old where every story I was hearing was just the same rendition of the same thing over and over different characters, maybe put out a little bit different, but the story was like the same. And I'm just like, I wasn't inspired anymore. And, and it wasn't until going to finding other, you know, indigenous cultures, mostly that I, I began to be inspired again, because I mean, just hearing some of these indigenous perspectives, they're just so unique and, and they, they have some like common threads throughout the world, but they're, the way they do it is, is so cool. And that's something I just was um, speaking with uh, an, an, another, I would say influential um, person in the active, activism space, uh, civil rights, but also action sports is um, a man named Salema Masakela. And I was listening to him speak just the other day. And when people were asking him, um, he's, he's a black American with roots from South Africa and Haiti. And when they were asking him, how do we be more inclusive of people of color within the outdoor space, outdoor recreation and action space? He just said, let the black people do it the way they want to do it. Don't have someone fit into the way you want them to do it. If you really want diversity and inclusion, just let them do it the way they want to do it. And for me, that's the indigenous story. It's not trying to Romeo and Juliet the thing. It's they'll make that story so abstract and so thought provoking that I love it. I. I think you can tell I, I love a good story. <laughs> what does it feel like in the context of the fact you've had so much exposure to these very important stories that you now hold? What is that then like in terms of a responsibility to retain them and to share them and to pass them on? Yeah, I feel like it's pretty funny because in growing up in school and I went to all Hawaiian school and um, out not just in school, but uh, I feel I grew up very um, Hawaiian style and I was ex like really fortunate enough to be provided some of the old teachings that aren't necessarily, you can't just go to school to learn uh, things like I was exposed to, you know, celestial navigation through, um, you know, wayfinding uh, exposed to the way to uh, carve surfboards, uh, the old, the traditional way, um, when to plant, when to fish based upon lunar calendars and tides and currents and things like that. And we, 
growing up, we had to do the protocols, you know, we had to, you know, chant and ask permission. And I was always that one kid that was running away and not wanting to do the thing. And, you know, I just felt like a little uncomfortable and, and maybe that just comes from some of the insecurities of um, being a colonized island nation, which um, trying to find an identity in a rapidly changing society and maybe questioning my identity if I'm, you know, native enough, if I'm modern enough, like, you know, trying to navigate that world is uh, many people I think can relate to not really knowing if they belong and questioning themselves and I think that's what was a big thing with me and truly um, owning my native view and my, my native tongue and my native voice, um, not just in uh, everyday vernacular, but through song, you know, that's something too that I, I um, you know, I, I wouldn't want to sing Hawaiian, you know, but I grew up singing Hawaiian and my family grew up singing Hawaiian and I just, I was like, oh, it's not really me, that's them and I, I same like there just was a, a point in my life where I remember um, I knew that we were supposed to engage in a traditional protocol in the environmental space that we're in and I looked around and there was no one there that knew the song and I was a little bit I, I was there's like uh, going back and forth like should I sh do I do it? No, no, I don't do it. You never done it before. And it's like, ah, oh, but you know, you know how to do it. And I'm like, ah, oh, but you're not going to do it right. So I'm having all this internal conflict and I'm, it was like kind of the time was closing because we were going to en enter into the sacred space, which I knew like, if you don't ask permission in the sacred space, like I've never done that before. So I was afraid that I don't know if like, we just go into a hole or the like volcano explode. I just like, didn't know. Cause like, I just knew that we, this had to be done and I was the only one who can do it. And by default, I just did it. And when that happened, it just felt like, oh, okay, that wasn't so bad, you know? And, and, and people appreciate it, but I didn't really do it for them. I didn't do it to seem like I'm this like Hawaiian priest or whatever. I just, I just did it because I knew that it was important to do. It was important to um, engage in those you know, laws of the island, as I like to think about them. And I just try to normalize it. You know, I, I don't try to make like I'm a, like I said, like a priest or anything like that. I'm, I like to have fun. I like to joke around. I like to explore and goof off. Um, but there's just certain things that I think as a culture, we take very seriously. And that's that idea of recognizing others. And others don't just include humans, you know. Others include, you know, animals or um, wind or currents, you know, or the way the light hits certain clouds to cause the soil to look a different color. Like those are all others that I think is important for our people. And we recognize them and we celebrate them so we don't lose, you know, sight of the important things in life and yeah I, I just try to make it as normal as possible you know i'm really interested in your perspectives on science 
given that you have, you know, a distinguished accolades in current modern science, but you also have a deep understanding of the other science that we don't give as much, um, you know, exposure and attention to, which is that of Indigenous cultures. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about your sort of current perspectives on modern science versus old science. Yeah, I really like how um, Dr. Rosie Alagado, she's a professor at the University of Hawaii. Uh, she studies the life sciences and, and natural sciences. She uses the term conventional science. And I really like that term because that, that's really, I think a better descriptor because you know, as native people, we're constantly doing modern science, but we're maybe not doing conventional. And I like to think about it similar to like agriculture, you know, like there's conventional agriculture and then there's, you know, permaculture or, you know, organic or whatever. There's just many forms of uh, this broad thing, which to me is science. And what I found uh, growing up that uh, conventional science is a great way to communicate to the world. And um, a lot of my, I guess, messaging and work is related to the idea of identity. You know, who am I and how do I fit into this huge story of the universe? And I did feel for many years I was silenced, um, whether that was real or not, or in my head or not, you know, I, I don't really put too much into that. That's just how I felt. And science was a, a microphone for me. It was a, a conventional science and, and, you know, Hawaiian science, indigenous science, whatever, like science was just like, people didn't really care too much about the color of my skin or the way I talked or the way I thought. If I could put numbers to a paper and justify through some empirical formula, my idea is worthy of being heard. People were cool with it. And that was kind of my, that was my avenue. I, I, you know, I, maybe some people use, you know, I guess I use surfing too, to a, to an extent to, to do the same, but there were, there wasn't, I think the support uh, surf wise as there was in science. Um, I just heard a statistic uh, I think it's from a, a United States poll. Um, I can't imagine it's global. Uh, I think it's just in the United States, but um, the amount of, out of 630,000 individuals that are practicing um, chemistry, which is the degree I got um, out of over, you know, 600,000 people practicing chemistry with a doctorate less than 50 are native people so literally i'm one of 50 that are practicing something that i'm formally educated in so like science is like i'm i'm it's a smaller pond for me to say something does that mean i'm a better scientist than you know any of you know, or other people know, it just allows me to have that voice, which is why I'm so like uh, pulled to science. In 
native science, conventional, um, you know, social science. I, I love everything that talks about trying to understand and communicate because I believe at the core of science is communication. That's really what it is. It's, it's, it's exploring an idea to communicate because there's some really smart people that are finding and inventing and doing all these crazy things, but they don't share it with anyone. And people wouldn't necessarily call them scientists. They'd be like, oh, they're like inventors or like, you know, you know, you're not a scientist, I feel, until you start sharing that message with people. And I, that's what I just love, you know? And the more, I guess, oh, it's crazy. Like these um, conversations become like therapy for me almost because I, I start to learn maybe more about myself. I never really thought about how desperate I was to have a voice and feel like valued you know, and science and surfing, those things make me feel like I have one. And whether it's a big one or a small one, it doesn't even matter to me. I just feel that it's a nice uh, reassurance to me and my community that our ideas are valuable. And I just got to do a little bit of tweaking on it, not a lot, to be seen as like, wow, that's like so crazy. Like you're so innovative or that's like so intriguing and wise or whatever. And I'm like, oh, that's like a story that like everyone knows at home, you know? And I can bring that back to the, the community. Like, look, like we're, we're, our views are valuable to people on the other side of the planet. You know, like we, we can um, not forget but maybe let go of some of that intergenerational trauma in a positive way, knowing that we're, we're valued and we're cared about. That was some of the biggest, I guess, uh, medicine, as some people say for me, is knowing that uh, I do have a voice that's valuable and I don't have to trip on that. Now I can just focus on the work. You know? hmm. I guess that's where I was also leading with that last question was that you know, conventional science is remarkable and it's, it really does do so much to underpin the current way we live and operate with all its shortcomings. But it's only in the hundreds of years old, yet when we look at mm. knowledge um, that's tens of thousands of years old, but that doesn't fit into this conventional science framework it's so easily disregarded and that is devastating mm. um yeah so if that opens up any further comments yeah there's i mean i think there's a lot of um politics in science as much as the scientists likes to believe that they're in the pursuit of higher knowledge and really objective and you know a lot of times i, I would say for the most part, when I was in school, I was told not to be an advocate, just be the scientist. Uh, don't put your emotions out, look at the data. And this is pretty a common thread, I think, in, in a lot of um, academic circles. But then when you leave, you know, we're taught to be that way in the institution. And when we leave and go out to the real world, people are like, what do you think about vaccines? What do you think about climate change? Like, what do you think about overfishing? And it's just like, now, you can say, well, the data says this, 
And people are like, well, you know, like F your data, this is what we see. It's not correlating. And then you have to now translate those ideas to someone who doesn't, was not trained in that space. So it's, it's, it's like when you go to the mechanic with your car and, you know, you're saying like, I don't understand. Like it started yesterday. It doesn't start today. What's the problem? And the mechanic's trying to say, well, you know, there's like this and this and this. You're like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Tell me the way I want to hear it. And, you know, that's, I think, the problem where science communication is trying to um, alleviate some of those issues. Um, it's not perfect and there's a lot of resources going into science communication with which I'm, I'm very interested in as well but again it's it's the way science has been perpetuated over the years is is very um colonial i would say and it, it makes people very uncomfortable when they have to recognize and look at their profession which you know, the, the, these are good people, you know, blood, sweat, and tears going into an idea of trying to improve the world selflessly. That's the, that's like the overall path, save the babies, you know, in the third world country or whatever. And to me, that's messed up to be like, who are you to come into somewhere else with the solution? When, if we look at it, we are products of our teachers and don't even know half of our teachers like really know them we're in a community when you when you're a little kid you know mr so-and-so mrs so-and-so miss so-and-so like they they have a community standing and you know where they live you know how they act when you see them outside of school they treat you kind or they don't and you can no i'm not gonna really listen to that teacher i'm gonna listen to this one when we go to university these people are just showing up to work you know, they're in the machine and we don't know if they're going through relationship issues, if, you know, they have, you know, parents who are sick or children who are sick, you know, the, the stress and the struggle that all these people are going and we're supposed to just take on face value what they say is the truth without them knowing any of the truths that we've experienced in our own life. To me, that's a, a very difficult thing to sell and to perpetuate. You know, and I think that's a lot of the flaws. It's not so much the science, it's the way we learn the science. It's those supposedly safe places that we go to in academia that aren't safe at all. You know, it's, um, it's really a systemic issue that can only be changed when we restructure the way we seek out education and also that we reward what education truly is. You know, do you need a PhD to know how to protect an ocean? I don't think so. You know? But why does someone with a PhD get told that you know, they're gonna be on the policy um, panel or they're gonna be the ones that are gonna speak to legislatures? Like, I don't, I don't know, but I went and got all of it just so I could you know, be like, I think all you folks are whack and you need to go back and really speak to the community and see what's going on and I, I feel like within, even in the, the professional scientific space, I get a little bit uh, cornered out and singled out um, as being maybe a little bit unorthodox and non-traditional and uh, virtue waving or, or whatever. And, and that's not my intention. Um, 
I just never really agreed with the whole institution in the beginning. And now they, they're forced to have to listen. And um, one of the main reasons I wanted to get these degrees is because when I was young, I was told I couldn't be on the beach because the science said I couldn't be there. And I just like, what, what, what science? You what know, was in the, what was the context around that? Well, you know, when there's migrations of certain animals, um, you know, there's uh, endangered species protections. Uh, maybe there's um, water quality issues, you know, things that I think um, we're told we can't be on the beach because of say a sewer spill. And that's that. And I'm like, who are you? I'm like, oh no, the science guy, the water quality guy, he comes down and he's like, look, this is the, this is the data. When you're just a, you know, a community member, a kid coming from a marginalized community, you beat it. I have an authority because of my academic accolades that I, I can tell you to leave. I have the authority. And I, I just thought that that was an injustice, you know, that depriving people of the places they need to be to be healthy because of an issue that another institution created. Like I, I that was it. That was an injustice. So, um, learning the way to remain at the beach and not to just do what I want to do and it's all about me, but to be able to have, at least have a conversation. We're now it, the same exact thing happened just literally two weeks ago down at the beach, like down the street. There was a sewage spill, and I was told, oh, you know, the Department of Health said no signs and all these things, and I said, where, where's the penal code on this? Where's the number? Can we call the Department of Health? Actually, I know who works there. Let's call them up right now. And, you know, it was, again, this idea that there's liabilities and people are afraid that if they don't just throw these big bands everywhere, you know, some blanket action, then someone's going to come out and get them. But they don't take into account how that's going to affect the community, you know, from the foundation of how everything works. And now as someone who is integrated into multiple levels in society, uh, I can challenge that, you know, in a way that's healthy and promote conversation. We're telling now these landowners saying, you know, I would challenge you landowners to speak to the Department of Health, to speak actually to the sewage plant, that they need to have a better protocol when these events happen. There needs to be better information so it can be disseminated to the community. So we're not fighting each other. I don't wanna fight the private landowners with the mansions on the beach. And I don't even wanna fight the sewage people. I just wanna be able to understand when I'm with my family trying to go and fish, why I cannot. You know, that's, that's it. When they can't tell that's the way it is and some like BS, you know, reason, I just never really, you know, that didn't sit well with me, so. Yeah, that, that was a pretty far tangent, but <laughs> I think, you know, it's, it's empowering now to know that um, it, it, it's, it's just so, it's so funny that like, it's taken me 24 years of school to be taken seriously. When I would argue that a lot of my worldviews, uh, not all of them, I would say up to 80% of the way I see the world was solidified when I was maybe 12, like that's just where I learned 
from these islands, from these stories, from my, my elders, like that's it. And all the extra just tweaks on that. And it's not, they almost like um, that remaining perspective shift. Cause I did go through a lot of um, shifts. Those are mostly dealing with personal trauma. That's where those, and I still hold dearly to my, my foundation in, in the old ways because they provide me a, a nice starting point to move forward. And I see a lot of uh, conventional science is not having a place of beginning. So it's difficult for me to accept that they know where they're going, if that makes sense. How does this transpire then when you are offering advice and guidance to be it youth, like, you know, with Parley's Ocean Uprise or just with, um, people that are currently studying or entering their career, how does it uh, transpire as the advice and guidance? A lot, of, a lot of people who are entering a career in science or startup culture, entrepreneurialism are listening to this podcast. So maybe mm. some, some words of, of guidance from you. I, mean, I, I only can speak from experience. Uh, I don't know if it's, a, again, a place of authority at all. Uh, but I found, I would believe the success that I've found in my life has been um, leaning in, into what I believe is what's right for me. Like every time I thought like, this is something that I believe, this is my truth. And this is what I'm leaning into. You know, I, I had to ask myself, like, is money, like, is that really what I'm about? You know, if I had a millions of dollars, like, would I be happy? And I, you know, it's being honest with yourself too. And knowing that some people, yeah, money makes them so happy. And I think those people, hey, chase money, chase the money that's going to make you happy in life. But being creative and, and maybe more honest and creative and, and knowing what really makes you feel good. For me, it's knowing that I'm loved and I'm, I'm valued. And once I started to, and not so much value, more loved, like I, I maybe I just wanted to know that I'm loved. And I started to see who out there can prove to me that they love me. You know, Instagram followers can't. Money, people that care about me, like if I go like to the club with money or whatever, like they, they don't, they can't, I can't believe in them to know that they love me. So those are the parts of my life that I stopped focusing so much on, you know? And the only thing that I think I could think about that I remain so dedicated to that I didn't really know if it loved me back is the ocean, you know? Like the ocean is something that it, I don't know if it loves me back. I love it so much, but there's not that same, like, there's not that like proof to me that the ocean just loves me. You know, I, I, I it's a, I don't know. And that's something that I, I really started to think about when I started wanting to be more involved in my family's life, because those people, my friends and my family, that there was a evidence that there was love of reciprocity, you know, and in turn, we all started to put our love together back into the ocean, if that makes sense. So it's like, it was more gratifying because then there was a, there's a love coming back to me, but like, 
I don't know, to me, like that idea of like entrepreneurship, academics, trying to be successful. To me, it's all about the thing that you love and it works out. I'm, I'm now doing something where I don't think people even recognize would be a, uh, like a job surfer scientist. Like, what is that? Like, I don't even like sometimes dig like, well, I don't even know, you know, it's, uh, when it comes down to it, it's more of a storyteller. Like my, my job is to tell the story and I try to tell that story in the surf and in the lab. And there are opportunities for me to maybe advance more of a, a surfing career by staying in certain places I didn't want to be. And same with uh, in science. I, I knew I wanted to come home. I wanted to be surrounded by people who love me and people who I love. And when I left school in 2018, when I graduated and came back to the big island, there was no job lined up. My sponsorships were, I was on annual sponsorships at the time and they were going to end at the end of 2018. And there was no job lined up for me when I came back. And I just was like, people told me like, don't do it. Like that's career suicide or whatever. And to me, I, I just knew that the, where I set out, why I did science, why I wanted to elevate my surfing proficiency, it was for the love. Um, I was going to go back and just do it for the love anyway. And when I did it, it took so much pressure off having to prove to the people that didn't, I think, care enough for me. And weirdly, it worked out way better. Like I started to get asked to do this and do that. And like, you know, contracts got extended, new contracts came in, um, grants. I, I wrote some grants about how to look at reef in my hometown that I grew up surfing. And I just tried to tell a story that I don't feel it's right for me as an island person to be off an island if that's my world. And I believe an island is just a beautiful metaphor for our planet. So it's relatable to people around the world. And I'm open to share that experience with the world. And if you wanna be on that journey with me, let's party. And if not, that's cool too. But I've been overwhelmingly surprised by the amount of people who wanna support this, this journey. What have been some of those highlight moments or things that you're most proud of in this unique journey to to where you are in in 2021 i think um professionally it's uh finding a path for those who would like to find their voice too like i, I didn't i didn't know anyone who who kind of made it out of where we we come from here in, in this community and um, it just, I'm just very happy to know that there's a way I stumbled and I wasn't the best at it. And, but I see it as like, I'm going to make sure I manicure this path as best as I can, because I want as many people to, to go through it as possible, whether that's through education, whether that's through outdoor recreation industries, whether that's through storytelling, filmmaking, journalism, I think. I just want to be a conduit for um, some of these individuals coming from my island, not because like I want to be like a good steward or like, you know, the, 
the priest or whatever again I, I just know that there's so much value in the way these people think and the way these people act you know some of my biggest heroes are my neighbors like literally live right next to me they're like they're people I look up to tremendously and and I think they could inspire like millions of people if given just the microphone for just a little bit and I think it you know the answer to a lot of these problems that we're facing injustices social injustices environmental injustices there are some incredibly inspirational solutions that are on my road right here in Hilo that we talk about all the time and we're talking about it over beers like and these are people who hated school like they they wanted to quit and they're just thinking ah, I wish someone said that I was good at science you know and who knows where they'd be now? I mean, they're incredibly impactful in our community, but I, I see the potential. Um, I see some of these problems that exist. And I'm like, man, if, if only a few of these individuals were able to communicate uh, to these other people, you know, like, I mean, I mean, speaking to you, Tim, like, I mean, you're an incredibly influential person and you're doing such an incredible work. Think about like the people you speak to as well. You know, these are people who are in these positions of perceived power that could have mega influence and oftentimes do have a, a single action is going to cause a chain reaction for thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people just for them saying yes or no. Like to me, that that's such a heavy responsibility for these people. And sometimes... I don't think we give them enough uh, respect, not, not like we got to respect them, but you know, like respect that kind of mentality. They know the game. They know that if they make the wrong decision, there's going to be thousands of people that love them. They make the right decision. Thousands of people are going to hate them. Like they're constantly weighing on this decision, but they're just people. Like this, that's not natural for like some of these people who are in these positions. And I found sometimes when we connect on a more human level with these people, it's easier for them to put down some of those fears about what are they going to think about me and really go back to a more uh, maybe like younger version of themselves that they can think about what really mattered again. You know, well, what's important for me? And then they usually move into that direction. And it takes a special kind of person to be able to like recognize those people and, and see like that, almost the child in the adult and be like, what's, what, you stressed? Ah, just come hang out. Let's just talk, let's just hang out. Let's not talk about policies. Let's not talk about pollution. Let's just talk about us. And there's people here that are so good at that that really can bring you back to what really matters, you know? And I, I want them to be able to, if they want to, you know, there's at least an option for, for those individuals and that um, perspective. Maybe it's not just individual, it's like a community perspective that whoever's the conduit to it, let that perspective continue on. Yeah, lends me to think about how much more work needs to be done even in privileged democracies um that that we live in in how to bring 
the voice of the many into those decision-making circles to ultimately alleviate that stress and that pressure that the individuals or a small cluster of people must feel and obviously mm. to then have that translate into much more meaningful change um, at the community level and for the sake of the planet. Um, let's talk, I guess, a bit about surfing. We've had a lovely meandering conversation, um, but certainly one of the things which is uh, at the core of you as a, as a human of, um, of some repute is your skills as a surfer. Um, tell us a little bit about that, but in particular, I suppose, how you've wrestled with the toxic underbelly of, of our mm. shared sport of, of surfing. Yeah. Um, so maybe, yeah, lead off from a chat about surfing, how, what it's meant to you, how it's led to who you are today, but then also, yeah, this, this, this conversation about innovation in materials to make them less harmful to our planet and our ocean. Yeah, um, like I said before, the surfing was just, uh, again, um, where I come from, it was a way for me to elevate my, my status, my social status. Um, I was not happy where I was at um, socially and economically as a child. And surfing was something that I felt a level of proficiency from a young age given to me by my family like it wasn't just like I was this like mega talented person or whatever it just was something that um it was supported and encouraged within the family unit it was a way for me to feel accepted and valued and also demonstrate um a level of um contribution because I'd start getting a little better as a kid and then like an uncle or an auntie would be like oh Cliff like good job like wow and then I felt like I was um I was making other people happy, not just my family unit. Now my bigger family, my community, and people were you know, thinking like, wow, Cliff, like you're, you're actually um, doing something cool, you know? And, and it wasn't for professional. I didn't do any contests or anything. It was just, I, um, I looked up to Hawaiian professional surfers and non-Hawaiian professional surfers. And I just, I, it's just, I knew it was an identity thing as well. Like I felt that was, this is my people. This is who we are. And I would love to be able to contribute on that level. And I, I think I tried for a little bit, maybe in my late teens to get recognized and noticed, but um, I realize now in retrospect that I, I don't think I, I was um, in that conventional surfer uh, demographic. And that was difficult for a lot of the um, industry to uh, celebrate. Not that they didn't want to. Uh, there's many conversations I've had where they uh, were appreciative of what I was doing. Um, athletically, it was more the story. And I, I began to realize that uh, it was a lot about champions. And it was a lot about um, conquering. And that was something that I didn't necessarily have in my image or in the way I wanted to promote myself. It was more about inclusion and, and oneness and elevated thinking and uh, fast forward, you know, really maybe like five or six years from just riding one board or two boards and same surf shorts and not even like caring too much that 
these opportunities started coming up because I think the industry as a collective began to think more towards inclusion and uh, connectivity and things like that. And, and that's when um, I think the work that I was doing could be celebrated in partnership with uh, some of these brands, which um, translated into support that allowed me to kind of um, indulge maybe a little bit in <laughs> some of the ways of the, the surf culture. And I, um, maybe I still, maybe not as much now with COVID, but I mean, there was a point where I, I was definitely putting out some tonnage of carbon <laughs> into the environment, chasing swells. Like I, I would be chasing swells all over the planet to be able to um, experience that. You know, I, I think it's hard. It's like when the candy is in front of the child, they're, they're just gonna grab, no one's there to say no. And it's almost like, it's just all there. Like the temptation is too great for, for me. That was like, I, um, and even too, I have to check myself. I try to, um, well, taking a step back, I recognize the detrimental impact that uh, uh, free surfer, I guess, has on the planet. Because I, I would even argue that a, a professional free surfer would be more damaging to the environment than, say, someone on a competitive tour, because they have a strict um, system and they can begin to strategize how to reduce maybe their carbon footprint, make things more efficient because there's a baseline. You know, okay, I know I need to go here. I can begin to do the work if I wanted to, to be more efficient and less detrimental. For the free surfer, your, the variable is the best swells. So it's like, how do you begin to manage that? And there are creative ways, but again, they're just, they're, you just have to be so much more creative. You know, I mean, airplanes, obviously, uh, transportation is like number one in um, contributing to, you know, carbon emissions in the atmosphere, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. These are all like U.S. Uh, surveys that are done. And of course, transportation, airplane is top of the list. Um, something that I think people don't look at is number two or number three, um, which a lot of time is uh, food consumption and transportation transportation. So, I mean, um, food consumption and uh, electricity use, like energy consumption for household. So again, like these are just so ingrained into our everyday life. And it's not like um, travel is this huge thing. And then there's like electricity bill and then food, like they're all massive um, contributors to um, these emissions of CO2, if we just think of carbon emissions. So I recognize for sure that that's a big issue, just as much as my cell phone, our computer, getting to the store, or, you know, even, you know, the tools that we use to even garden. And like, I mean, I maintain my lawn with like a gas mower, you know, I don't have solar and, you know, my electric equipment, I plug in to the grid, which is based on, you know, fossil fuel. So, Recognizing, I think, is something that I, I definitely, I definitely think about all the time. And how do I find these efficient solutions? And how do I be better in that sense? Um, transportation, materials, wetsuits, clothing, um, surfboards, obviously, you know, conventional surfboards, 
Um, yeah, I mean, we can talk all day long about the problems in the, the surf industry, I think as a whole. Um, what I try to do is work closely with partners and brands to find technology and innovative solutions to help us move forward. Um, it's difficult, it's a difficult um, conversation to have, which is why I oftentimes try not to get pigeonholed into like an eco surfer, you know, like a, a sustainability surfer, like surfing wise, I wanna be an environmentally conscious surfer, recognizing my impacts that I have, the positives and the negatives, because I think our positive impacts sometimes are eclipsed by our negative impacts. And if I can do a little bit of service to bring into light the positive impacts that we have as surfers, then I think it could help to um, be honest about our negative impacts. And then we can begin to see how we can make that tough decision if that surf trip is worth it, if that wetsuit is worth that, if the surfboard is worth it. And if it is, make the decision. If it's not, then may maybe make that decision which is best for you. To me, that that's um, fulfilling work for me is not telling someone that they need to do something or not do something. It's more giving them the information to make the best decision that they can make for themselves. And I feel that's just a level of respect I want to have for you know, all people is that I can't tell you what situation you're in. I don't know all the hardships that you're going through. And maybe you need this brand new polyurethane, polyester resin board so you don't hurt someone or hurt yourself. Maybe you need this. Do it. Do it. But maybe you don't, and you're just being a little bit uh, gluttonous in that sense. And if you know you can recognize the privilege, then you know, don't buy the board. You know, that's I, I'm lucky to have support in a, a board manufacturer who produces a lot of, of boards every year. And you know, to me, it's. Um, it's also kind of one of those uh, temptations there too. It's like, do I really need to be constantly, if this board works, do I really need to get another board right now? Just because I want to explore the new model or you know, the fun factor. I pretty much, um, there's a few instances where I, I wasn't able to reclaim, but the boards that I break, I still have them and I fix them in half. And I usually pay for the, the repairs on it and then I'll try to get it to the community if I can. If not, I'll still write it. So like those are just small, like creative things that aren't on face value seen as super environmentally friendly or eco because they're made out of like traditionally like conventional materials. Um, but making sure they don't end in the waste stream is something that I, I try to focus heavily on is my waste. Um, it's not the entire it's not the entire solution and I understand that. And I think you can sense just in my voice how uncomfortable it is to think about that I'm, I'm making a, a living out of something that is um, detrimental to something that I love so much. Um, and I think it's okay. Like, I think we have to embrace the uncomfortable situation that our day-to-day -day life may have these negative impacts or the guarantee have negative impacts 
So how do we celebrate these positive impacts they're having? And if the negatives definitely outweigh the positives, I think that's a lifestyle change we, we have to make. And that's what I, I try to make as well. Yeah. And that's that mature pragmatism, which I'm certainly seeing hit the, uh, hit the mainstream now. Um, I think there's been a bit of a, a puritanical perspective and it still obviously exists and that's welcome because I think it's like an ecosystem, right? You need biodiversity to, to, mm. to make it thrive. And so I'm happy for the spectrum to be broad, but I do think there's this beautiful pragmatism that really centers around that transparency, just like you reflected upon, but also just a, a clear intention that we're on a road towards the goal of much better. And we try yeah. and kick out the really bad and we find ourselves in this little middle ground where it's, it's better, um, but we want to be on a pursuit of great. Um, yeah. Oh, totally. Like, I think um, something that this kind of like maybe dances along the line a little bit, but I would say um, publicly, I'm very supportive of anything that's pushing the needle into being more environmentally conscious and also uh, beneficial to our environment, reducing the harm. Like I'm on board, I would say with like, 99.9% .9 of these things, um, which sometimes I, I get some shit from people who think it's greenwashing or whatever, but I think it's important to celebrate the work privately behind uh, some of the closed doors. And I think even some of my, my partners would <laughs> vouch about this is uh, I can be maybe a little bit difficult um, behind the scenes. And it, I don't need to be celebrated as, as being like a exposer or a whistleblower or anything like that I, I don't feel that's necessary I feel my my role is to jump in with the crowd and go with the flow like and celebrate as much as I can the the journey of everyone on this um, the only time I, I go and cross current and upstream is when uh, kind of internally behind the scenes because I don't want to call out people who are just ill-informed and ignorant to the opportunities that they can present even on a corporate level. Um, and it's not because I'm afraid of my job being in jeopardy or anything like that. I just feel like my role, that's my role is I can be um, quiet with the flow and I can be loud when we get to the, the bank and maybe <laughs> tell some of the people internally what's going on. But uh, if they do listen to this, they'll probably know who they are, but I love them just as much. You know, I think that that they're willing to hear some of my outlandish requests and um, criticisms internally. That's the hard part to communicate to the public is that internally, there's some really, really great people in some of these seemingly terrible corporations that are trying their best, which we need to do better they're people too, you know, at the end of the day, they're, they're really awesome and kind people. Their image gets just kind of put in the mud because of some of the work they're participating in. And, and again, like that's a personal choice that they, they have. And that's my personal choice too, to let them know what's going on. But I mean, out of a, out of a place of like, what can I do to help? Like I see it going forward in this space. We can't get to 100% uh, 
eco-friendly or biodegradable or whatever, okay, what can we get to and what's limiting us to get there? And is there anything that I can do, whether it's about promoting something, whether it's about actually using some of my uh, formal training as an analytical chemist, um, natural product discovery, like I don't, whatever we got to do, how can I lend my service to, to push us in that direction? And, you know, like, as you know, the work is, there's, it's so complex and it's, it's just a web of issues, but that I think people are open to it, even in some of the most corporate levels, we, it's up to us now to get just really innovative where we got to put something on the table that is just too good for them to refuse where they're like, wait, really? It's cheaper than what we're doing now. We'll make more money and it's actually coming from a local source and we're going to reclaim everything back to make it the next season. No. What's the catch? Like, Hey, no catch. You know, it's just, it's just a flip on this whole thing. And then they get, well, who's going to even buy that? Well, I don't know. Maybe that's where we have to try to get our resources into is celebrating the work and getting a collective that is going to fund this type of you know, operation. And they're, they're happening and it's inspire. It's inspiring from one sense to know that that's, I think, a direction uh, in a lot of brands moving forward is having this environmental social impact. Um, a lot of them are, are fun are because they're being incentivized for some of the retailers to make sure they have that in order to get their product pushed, which ah, that's, that's fine too. We're incentivizing in, in ways that hopefully will benefit the planet at the end. Cool, mate. Well, I sense this uh, conversation could meander for a while unless we nip it in the bud. Um, <laughs> I'm looking behind at my notes, which I haven't really consulted at all. And, just reflecting that our conversation could have taken a dozen different um, you know, tangents today, but I'm really happy with, with where it went and really value your time, um, the contribution you've made today and throughout your life. Um, I'll leave it up to you to say some final words or, or mention anything that you, that you intended to talk about today that haven't got to. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's, again, this is like the story, huh? It just kind of keeps, keeps going. And I, I'm always excited to see like what chapters um, I can look back on and, you know, what chapters are to come. So I think um, something that I, I do enjoy doing is collaborating with, with individuals. You know, sometimes um, as crazy as the idea might sound and as far-fetched, uh, you know, I would hope that if people have ideas where they see me as being of service or contributing to an idea that um, is not just going to impact few, but many, like to please like think about me or um, where I come from. I think I just represent, uh, again, a perspective and a philosophy of what exists in island nations. And the more we include those types of perspectives into a more global setting, I, I think we're we're going to be able to see a more positive change. Thank you so much for your time today, Brother Cliff. And again, for all that you do, um, we'll catch you on the flip side. Mahalo. Well, I will hope.